Hello and welcome to Spirit Pig. This is the show that explores how to live a fulfilled life. I'm Duncan CJ and today I'm speaking with Chris Voss. Chris is a former FBI hostage negotiator. During his 20... 24- I know you got his you got his hat. I was, I was excited when we clicked record. I'm like, brilliant! There it is. <laughs> During his 24 year career, he became the FBI's lead international kidnapping negotiator, and has been involved with over 150 kidnapping cases. Chris started out working on a suicide hotline and quickly realised that his negotiating skills were applicable not just in hostage situations but to all areas of life. He's the author of Never Split the Difference: Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. Chris, thank you so much for being here. I'm happy to be here. You 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 took me hostage today. <laughs> now this is I um this this is a fascinating one. I I love I'm I'm, I'm I'm I love human psychology. I love what drives people, emotions, and you. I mean, human psychology is this is like this is your bread and butter. Like for many people, being understood is more important than getting what they want. Isn't that right? Yeah, you know, and, that, and that's a crazy thing about it. Like everybody in every negotiation, no matter who you are, and, and, and me and my staff, my company, we believe there's, there's three basic types, which are fight, flight, and make friends. That's the instinctive thing. There's, for every one of us, there's something more important than making a deal. And, and being understood is a great way to get people to go along because, you know, I'll probably go along with you as long as I know you know where I'm coming from. And that, that's a that's a universal trait. So being understood is a powerful way to make deals and not give anything up. Just understand the other side. Yeah. And, and, and there's a difference. There's an interesting distinction between understanding someone is not the same as agreeing with them, is it? Oh, absolutely not. And, you know, that, and that, that's, that's hard for some people uh, because they feel like, if somehow if I show you that I understand where you're coming from, then that means that I'm giving in. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. I wish I knew exactly where they came from because it's not true. And it's often, you know, there's a there's a famous book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Yeah. You know, and Covey always told us all, seek first to understand, then be understood. Well, yeah, you know, it's amazing how far you can get just by under- showing the other side you understand them. And it's a lot more complicated than just saying, I understand. Uh, and actually, actually, that that's the worst way to show you understand is to say it like that. Because in reality, it ends up being dismissive most of the time. And, and people are so battered with being dismissed by I understand that it actually usually makes them mad. Mm. We, we often want, um, I don't know, there's often a, a tendency. I, d- I don't know if. I don't know if guys are worse than this, you know, we, the, the girls, but like we often want to try and fix things or solve people's problems. And um, <laughs> when when you talk about being understood, it made me think that you know often the most sort of compassionate thing that we can do for someone is for them to feel truly heard or to feel seen. You know. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a, a former colleague of mine used to like to say it's the cheap, cheapest concession we can make is listening to the other side. And, you know, whatever the percentage is of problems that will automatically unravel themselves, you know, whether you think it's 1%, whether you think it's 90%, it's a percentage. And I don't want to bother attacking problems that I can uh, let self-unravel, self-correct, self-fix with the approach of understanding, by demonstrating understanding, by articulating to the other side where they're coming from and how they feel about it. I mean, you hate this. This makes you unhappy. You're angry with me because I did this. Um, I only want to bother struggling with the struggles that I need to struggle with. 
And that's why it's it's uh, very counterintuitive, soft, um, you know, velvet uh, velvet glove approach, which is just really really effective. Mm. I, I love the um, the the 2002 um, Nobel Prize was awarded for the discovery of a theory, and that humans are inherently loss averse. We give at least twice as much decision making weight to the idea of losses than gains how does that how does that realization kind of show itself in in kind of the line of, kind of stuff you do and then also i know our day-to-day life well and i have to be a fan of nobel prize winners because i will never be one <laughs> you know if, if i'm ever going to get a nobel prize i'm going to have to go down to the hardware store and have them make one for me but uh yeah you know there's two brilliant guys uh, Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky, a couple of Israeli psychologists, is just insanely smart guys. And Kahneman got the Nobel Prize. Tversky didn't only because by the time it was handed out, Amos Tversky had died of cancer, sadly. But it was these guys, the psychologists, were far more interested in how people actually acted as opposed to psychological theories that people somehow will not follow. You know, there's an old saying, it's great. It's great uh, in reality, but it's no good as a theory. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they came to realize that people overreact to negativity. People overreact to loss. People have these biases. And, you know, they, then they articulated in a the theory that we feel a loss twice as much as an equivalent gain. If I take uh, $5 out of your pocket, it hurts you twice as much as if I gave you $5, even though we're only actually still talking about the same amount. Whether I'm taking it from you or giving it to you, you have an emotional reaction that doubles when I take it. And, you know, the fascinating thing about that was I listened to an interview that uh, uh, Professor Kahneman gave, and he said, well, you know, it's, it's, it's not true that a loss things twice as much as an equivalent gain. It's just not true. He said it's actually five to seven times as much. We just wanted people to argue with us less. And so we lowered the number so we get fewer arguments. So when you, you know, if you can wrap your mind around that, that gives you a whole different set of tools, a different skill set. You know, I call it the high value targets. In a negotiation or in an interaction, if I tell you one target is worth one point and I tell you the other target is worth seven points, which target are you going to shoot at? You're going to shoot at the seven point target if if you're either smart or lazy or both. You know, I heard uh, somewhere along the line, I said uh, I saw a management philosophy was give me smart, lazy people because they're going to they're going to find all the shortcuts and they won't do unnecessary work. So if you can use prospect theory to to, uh, guide your approach, you know, instead of, say, pitching, instead of pitching the game, uh, let people know what they'll lose by doing nothing. That's, you know, that's what's what going to say. So, like a, a practical way, which when you use the the five dollar loss, the five dollar gain, like what's another example is you're, you're talking to someone, and rather than saying, "Oh, you got all these amazing benefits," or "This might happen if you do this," showing them what is at risk, what is at loss, that would be much more of a, a motivator. That'd be a lot more to get them, you know, to actually take action when they realize actually this is the potential loss. That is much more of a driver of human action. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I talked to a guy who had uh, he sold benefit packages for executives as a way to uh, attract and recruit executives to companies. And what he did was he said, you know, just let me look at your benefit package 
and I'll uh, analyze it compared to what I've got that could potentially I could offer you. And then when he would come back, he would say, when you st- if you stick with your current package, this is what this costs you each and every day. Do nothing. And each day that goes by, this is how much it's going to cost you. And that's, that's a great motivator to act. Does this reflect, is this same theory, is that, can that be seen in just all facets of life? For example, like the, the whole fear of loss, it's so ingrained into us. Like, I know, say you've got in a relationship, there's, you know, a boy and girl and they go on a date and afterwards, you know, I might be like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not that fast. And then suddenly you think that they're interested in someone else. And then suddenly you really want them and you like, you just suddenly like, there's suddenly you're a lot more interested because that fear of loss, is this the same theory or is this just? Is... Yeah, a- a- absolutely. If you don't act, you're going to miss out. I mean, it's what, it's what uh, so many salespeople, they, they tempt that when, you know, say act now, supplies are limited. Mm. You know, act now before you miss out. And it's a it's a it's a fear of loss, which rolls into another thing called scarcity. And yeah, absolutely. You know, if, if I don't do this, it's going to be gone. And that is a much stronger motivator to to act for human beings across the planet. This is this is stuff that is not just uh, it's not just Western. It's not just American. It's not Western European. It's not the developed world. This is a human nature thing. So. This uh, uh, acts on the minds of people in New York City, in, in Bogota, Colombia, in Cape Town, South Africa, and Tokyo, Japan. I mean, this, these are, this is a universal aspect of human nature. Mm. Yeah, we've had a couple recently. We've had a couple of interviews. Um, we've been looking a little bit at sort of evolutionary psychology and... I mean, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not certain because, you know, they're not here to, but I mean, maybe it's drawn in the whole thing of like, you know, thousands and thousands of years, like prehistoric men, you know, if there was suddenly like, uh, like some, some fruit or some berries, you know, you suddenly have got to act now, <laughs> otherwise potentially they will be gone and out of season. And so that's why we're so drawn to like sugary things, you know, we're still ingrained in that mindset of like, you've got to act now, otherwise it'll be gone. So I don't know, maybe there's some whole links to a prehistoric man going on there. Well, yeah, there is. I mean, and re- regardless of how much smarter we get, you know, the portion of our brain that can process information or, or take in information, you know, there's still a portion of our brain from the caveman, prehistoric man, you know, the amygdala, if you will, and the, the limbic system and, you know, all these things that I, I never sure if I completely pronounce correctly. <laughs> you know, I, for the longest time, you know, I, I grew up in the Midwestern United States and I didn't know if amygdala was a part of the brain or an Italian coffee. I didn't know what it was, <laughs> but, uh, you know, these are things that are just there no matter, it, even interestingly enough, you know, terrorists, sociopaths, psychopaths. And I had this conversation with some psychologists in Hong Kong just a couple of weeks ago. They said, you can't negotiate with terrorists, can you? And I said, do terrorists have limbic systems, which is where the amygdala is. And uh, the room kind of went silent because, you know, the response was, yeah, you got a point. Anybody with with a, an emotional aspect to their brain and that's every human being, uh, you can you can influence them. You can you can guide those emotions in Jedi like night like ways, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> now, and I have I have the beard to go with it, too. You know, I got a little beard here. <laughs> I heard you say on um, the James Altucher show about the most dangerous negotiation is the one you don't know you're in. How, how can you explain that? Well, you know, you're in a negotiation. If the word yes is in anybody's mind, if that's a desired word, you're in a negotiation. 
if I want is in anybody's mind. You know, you're trying to influence actions. You know, it's not just where money's involved because there's two, there's uh, there's one commodity, if you will, commodity that's involved in every negotiation and it's not money. And that commodity is time. Uh, and so if you think you're only negotiating, we're talking about money. You know, you're in negotiations all the time. People are trying to get you to do something, internal negotiations in a company, negotiations with your family. Those are, those are influence negotiations where somebody's trying to get you to do something. You're trying to get somebody to do something. That's a negotiation. And if you don't know that, you're being taken off guard all the time. Mm. All right, let's talk about morality then. That's a nice little bridge. Like, there's obviously there's there's a light side and you know versus the dark side. What do you feel is the line between being influential versus being manipulative? You know, that's a great question um, because uh, uh, an uh, an author that I really love, uh, a guy named Adam Grant, who's written some brilliant stuff. Adam's written originals and give and take. I mean, he's one of those guys. If Adam Grant has written it, you should read it. Yeah. Um, and I, he, he wrote an article not terribly long ago called The Dark Side of Emotional Intelligence. Um, because, you know, emotional intelligence skills, once you wrap your mind around them, are insanely effective. And they're so effective that, you know, very bad people use them. And they don't use them. They only choose them because they work. Mm. You know, if you're, if you're a bad guy, uh, if you're a psychopath, if you're a sociopath, you're not using emotional intelligence because you're a sweetheart of a guy. You're using it because it's ridiculously effective and you can really hide what you're doing, which gets us back to this morality issue and the difference between manipulation and influence. You know, my best answer to that is, you know, I, I like I like an approach if it makes a mercenary happy and if it makes a missionary happy. You know, missionaries, you know, good people, people trying to help other people, they use emotional intelligence also. They're using it for good purposes. Um, if, if you're, if you're, if you actually genuinely want the other side to thrive, which if you have any sense, you do, mm. because I, you know, I, I can't remember, uh, I was talking to a friend once and I said, you know, you don't make money with dead adversaries. What, what happens is, and I mean, the, uh, figuratively, of course, but, uh, you got to have people that do business with you on a regular basis or you can't do business anymore. No one will, will do business with you because all your counterparts are dead. Uh, they're financially dead or they're, 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 they're dead to you and they're tired of talking to you because you take advantage of them all the time. So, you know, you got to look out for other people. You got to make the missionary happy. You got, you got to make the world a better place. And, you know, you, you have to have a more effective, fulfilled life. Um, and you have to take care of yourself and you have to take care of others. And part of this is take care of others. Mm. I, I mentioned you, it was a, it was a sort of 24 year career in the FBI and like, does that have how, how when you're dealing with these sort of high pressure situations and often some very harrowing and sad situations, how do you not get drawn in in, in an emotional way? How can you keep some distance? I mean, d- does that have an emotional? Do you have to like after each time? Do you have to like I don't know? Like do you have you got to go away? You got to meditate? I mean, like what? How do you not get drawn into the the emotion of those moments? Well. It's it's a good broader question too. Also, and how do you got not get emotional in any negotiation? You know, when you got a lot at stake, when something really matters to you, and 
a weird way we did as hostage negotiators, the more we focused on how the other side was feeling, there's a certain compartmentalization that takes place in the brain where um, you are less emotional and you are just picking up what's going on and you become sharper. And there's and I and I don't know exactly why that worked. I just know it does. Now, the, the other part was, you know, if we had the ability to, to deal with the stress a little bit like an emergency room doctor. I mean, some emergency rooms, some people who are doctors can't be emergency room doctors. I mean, some people can't go into medicine because they can't stand to see suffering. You know, if you feel like you're doing everything you can to alleviate it, then, yeah, there are some tough days uh, there. And I think to, at some point in time, I, I said to myself, you know, how's it possible that I could feel bad about this? Because nobody in my family died. You know, the people that I work with are the people that I tried to help. You know, they're entitled to stress and trauma and feeling a tragedy because somebody in their family actually died. I'm not. I just I'm just not entitled to that feeling because nobody in my family died. And I have to be there and I have to do the best job I can possibly do. And, you know, I will tell you that I always viewed it as a privilege. And when you feel you're doing something that you're privileged to do, then, yeah, there are tough days. But, you know, you pick it up and you move on. This is a bigger picture thing as opposed to that immediate day and getting drawn in, in like that thing. Like you said, you feel it's the privilege. So it's like you are, you're doing something which is almost bigger than you, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so and anytime, and that's what drives us in life anyway. I mean, everybody wants to be involved in something that's larger than they are, that has more meaning than whether or not they got up in the morning. They contributed. It's, it's what religion is about. It's why there are religious temples around the planet that, that people labored on for years for nothing. Because it was about they were contributing to something larger than they were themselves. So it's it's about who we are as human beings. Also, yeah. uh, I'm guessing the majority of uh, the listeners and you know myself included probably won't end up being a hostage negotiator. But obviously, you know, there's negotiating in business deals, in pay rises. Like, what are some of the ways that some of these skills can help us in our personal lives? Well, here's when here's when somebody's been trying to take here's when somebody's trying to take you hostage, and I'll bet you've dealt with this. Because your significant other at any point in time, whoever that may have been, when that person, you know, and I don't know him or her, but they, you know, they matter to you. They called you on the phone. And they said, can we talk? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got to tell you something. You just had a gun pointed to your head. You're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> so you got to you got to talk your way out of that, baby. Otherwise, uh, things are just going to go bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> any tips <laughs> we say I'm, I'm ready for that conversation you say sounds like there's something on your mind <laughs> <laughs> that is as ridiculous as that sound it sounds like you got something to say that's really important to you those are those are actually that's an adaptation of a hostage negotiation skill and even in business you know uh, uh when somebody's really got something on their mind you know if you just say to them you know, it sounds like this is really important to you. It sounds like you put a lot of thought into this. It sounds like you've got something on your mind. I mean, that's that's disarming when someone is on the attack, um, but it lets them know you're dialed in mm. and you realize the importance of this. And their first objective was to get you to understand that this was important. You know, it's the boss that says to us all the time, this is important, guys. Uh and just reiterating that understanding automatically dials them down. It takes it down a notch and puts them in a more collaborative mindset. 
Can you share a, uh, do you have a sort of a memorable time in, I mean, I don't know, maybe in your life where you've either negotiated super successfully or actually on the flip side had a completely unsuccessful, like a negotiation fail? Well, um, you know, the one example in this whole sounds like this is important approach was, you know, and I teach in two different universities and MBA programs. I've been applying this stuff to people's professional and personal lives since I, uh, shortly after I left the FBI in 2009. Um, I left in 2007. I started teaching in 2009 at Georgetown. One of my students is in the office one day. Uh, you know, he's a rising star executive. That's why he's working on his MBA. And uh, the boss comes by and grabs him and says, come on with me. Come on with me. You got to come with me. We got to fix this right now. And, and I loved it because he referred to that as uh, a boss drive by. And, you know, in the United States, to drive by is like a shooting. Yeah, Somebody yeah. comes by. And, <laughs> so he called it the boss drive by. And as he's being drugged down a hall to the boss's office, I mean, there's two things in this scenario. If your boss comes to you and says this is really important. Inherently, instinctively, uh, you know two things are true. Um, uh, the boss is on the wrong track because if he's come and grabbed you, he or she's come and gotten you with no notice, you're responsible for implementation. And with no notice means he's thought of he or she has thought of an answer and they haven't consulted with you. So their answer can't be completely right. You're, you're in trouble on the way down to the office. Because they should have consulted with you and they didn't. And from the boss's perspective, doing this in this dramatic fashion, the first thing they want you to know is this is important. Mm. And and my student said, this sounds really urgent. And that seems like in, stupidly obvious. But the boss immediately reacted because that was the first and most important part of their message. This is urgent. And as soon as he realized that his employee got that. He relaxed. And by the time they got to the office, he was relaxed enough that he was willing to listen to an interaction and they changed the outcome, which otherwise might have been, but hey, have you thought of this? Have you thought of this? And the boss would be like, this got to be done now. It's important. Um, and they got completely out of that mindset. So, you know, kind of pointing out the obvious when people are really really feel a sense of urgency. You know, it sounds like this is urgent. It sounds like this is important. It really helps people dial down. You you help people with this approach. It kind of ties into the, um, what was it? The, the 738.55, is it? Where it's like, it's not, you know, the, the, what the actual they're saying is only 7% of it. Like, it's about like, you got, you're actually understanding the emotion behind it. So what, what just for anyone, um, seven, is it 738.55, is that it? 738.55 is a magic ratio around the world that uh, academics love to argue and practitioners say is, is right on the money, which is, you know, the interesting argument. Okay, you know, what does an academic think of a ratio of communication components? And that's what you say, how you say it, and your body language when you say it, uh, the relative aspects. 738.55 added together comes to 100. And the idea that that's 100% of the communication. Um, and, and it diminishes content. And of course, academics, if you will, who tend to write for a living, mm. they hate the idea that what they've written and what they say is less diminished 
in importance. I mean, it makes them insane. You want to make an academic insane, find a way to imply to them that their words aren't that important. It, so that, that's the breakdown. So 7% is what we say. 38% is how we say it. And then the 55% is body language. That, is, that's the, those, is that the order? Right. That's, and, and, and it's a relative ratio. I mean, yeah. it's the, the degree of importance. And it's um, interesting because in, like, it's, 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 it's illogical in the sense that, no, it's not illogical, but we, I guess we over-prioritize our words. So it's, it's shocking how the words we actually say, say we stand up in front of a group of people, the words we say, which we, we slave over and we think are so important, is actually only 7% of the communication. The, like, the rest of it, 93%, is how we say it and the way we stand and the way we present it. That's, that's the, yeah, that's the amazing bit, isn't it? It's amazing, and I can promise you right now, some of your listeners, it's making that them, it's making them insane thinking about <laughs> it. Somebody is just like that. It's, it's, but and I'll and I'll and I'll give you a quick example because I can say, look, um, you're one of the smartest people I've ever spoken to, and then I can say, you're one of the smartest people I've ever spoken to. No change in the words, a completely different meaning. Yeah. And clearly the meaning is vastly different. I didn't change the words at all. So I could make the argument that the delivery is even more important than 38% of the message. And I know no shortage of people. You know, I, I read a book uh, a number of years ago. This guy rode, rode his motorcycle literally around the world. And just because of his gut instinct for body language and tone of voice, you know, he'd go into restaurants and order food in countries where he didn't speak the language. He'd, he'd go and change money in a black market money exchange in countries where he did not speak one word of the language because he understood body language and he understood expression and he, and, and he realized how you, with good body language and good tone of voice, you can communicate almost any message. And to me, that, that really backs up the, uh, the idea as well. What does a fulfilled life mean to you? You know, um, working on uh, contributing in a larger way, making the world a better place, helping people. I mean, you know, uh, I'm talking to you today because my book, Never Split the Difference, is out there. It's, it's, in, it's in 14 languages around the world. It's, it's in Asia. It's in Japan. It's in several languages in Europe. And when somebody sends me an email that says, hey, I paid for your book four times already and I have I just got through the first chapter and people are making their lives better I mean I I want the book everybody on the planet to have the book because it'll help them and I dig that I mean I you know I am I am a small midwestern guy town guy from the middle of the United States I grew up in a town of 7,000 people you know we just barely we barely had traffic lights in my hometown I'm from this tiny town in the midwest and the idea that somebody in another country could read my book and it would help them have a, a, a better day or a better life or a more successful career, to me, that's, that's fulfilling. I like helping other people. Um, I'm very selfish that way. <laughs> <laughs> and what is one thing our listeners can start doing today that will have a positive impact on their lives? Let the other side go first. Hear somebody out. You know, hear five people out today. When people are talking to you, when you have a point you want to make, just five times, hear five people out first. See if you can get them to say that's right to you. 
Just do that five times. And if you've got five horrible outcomes, never do it again. <laughs> I'll bet you, you get five ridiculously enjoyable outcomes. And then maybe, maybe you'll do it a lot because you, you enjoy that so much. Last but not least, how can people find out more about you and your work? Where can we send them? All right, go to the website, blackswanltd.com. And that's B-L-A-C-K-S-W-A-N-L-T-D, like limited.com. Um, I would like to point out there was a movie a number of years ago about ballerinas called The Black Swan. We are not ballerinas. <laughs> I'm wearing an FBI cap. I'm not a ballerina. I'm, I'm not a ballerina. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good guy. <laughs> Chris, this has been fun. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. <laughs> it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me on.